This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is May 27th, 2021, and this is episode 241. I'm Scott Lunderbone. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we talk to a campaigner from the Vote 16 BC campaign with Dogwood BC, and BC is restarting its restart plan along with other provinces, so we're going to do another compare and contrast. First, thank you to the 101 people who contribute to make this show happen every month. You can join them please do at patreon.com slash politicoast. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast, enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to politicstoday.news slash free dash trial. Well, joining us now on Politicos is Hallelujah Hailu from the Vote 16 BC campaign. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. So your campaign is calling for the voting age in the province of BC to be lowered to 16 years of age. Why should kids get to vote? I think the better question is why can't kids already vote? I feel like people don't realize this a lot, but youth in the province have so many responsibilities. I'm 17 right now for context. I I got my learner's permit at 16 and I can take a road test, but there's also those other responsibilities where I know a lot of teenagers that file their taxes and work jobs and have been working jobs and make themselves very active members of society and have so many issues that they feel have no voice in, in regards to politics, at least. And especially, I think, in the last couple years, youth have made it very clear that they're very aware of what's happening in our House of Commons, what their MPs do. And I think with a little bit of voter education, young people could become even more active members um, of society. And like, it's been shown so many times internationally, how younger kids, like the younger people start voting, the, the more they vote for the rest of their lives. I think there are so many great things that can come from young people voting. So With this campaign, you're calling on the province and I guess the federal government and all levels of government to change the voting age. What's the strategy? Like, how do you make this happen? Because you can't just vote as 16, 17 year olds for the people who are promising to make this change. How do you convince the adults in the room? Uh, Yeah, so this campaign, I think, started, I I was one of the people that were involved from the start of the campaign. Oh, God, I was probably like, grade 10 or 11 so i think two through maybe before then well times passed the strategy has been doing the work that activists before me have done lots of petitioning talking to mlas and and hearing from community but i think the biggest part of this campaign has been educating of course the biggest feedback that we get from older folks in the room is kids don't know what they're talking about they don't know what they're doing um, of course, there are those kids that are like stepping up and like organizing protests and writing those emails to the M- their MLAs. But there are those kids who feel lost and don't exactly know what's going on in terms of politics. The scary bit is those kids aren't going to be kids forever. Those kids are going to turn 18 and then be able to vote and have no access to this education. Big thing that we talk about for in Vote 16 is more voter education. You should know who you're talking about, who you're voting for, who you're supporting. So a lot of that work has been educating, talking to people, talking to the adults in the room and explaining slowly and calmly like what we believe something that should have been given to 16 and 17 year olds a while ago. What sort of successes have you had so far? Has there been much interest from the powers that be in this? I think there's been lots of murmurs and, and talks about it in the past. I think one of my favorite, my favorite, I don't know if you can have a favorite win, but one of the first big wins, I was like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. The BC municipalities get together every once in a while. And there have been times in the past where lowering the voting age had been a motion like to support the idea of lowering the the voting age at the municipalities meeting. And the last time around, again, time, I'm bad 
dates so horrible at them. But I think 2019, if I'm correct, with the help of many Vote 16 campaign members and probably lots more education and knowledge about lowering the voting age, the BC municipalities got together and support the idea of lowering the voting age at the convention. So that was a really big win that we had. And at the BC NDP convention, there was a motion that passed in regards to vote 16. Although there's not full party support or anything, but there's lots of people who are super supportive of us in the terms of MLAs. Uh, I think the BC Greens have voiced their support. We're still trying our best and trying to get more bigger confirmed support from party members, but I think support, getting people educated about it has been the biggest win out of anything. Yeah, the BC Greens, I think, ran on it in the last election. And I can see on the Dogwood BC website, the group behind the campaign, there's lots of labor support as well, some churches as well. So cross spectrum support for this idea. I'm curious, I don't know how much you know about this, but I'm just staring at the Wikipedia article, but how many other countries around the world, like most people think of voting ages and they think of 18 as being the standard around the world now. Has anywhere they've gone to 16 or 17? Oh, I remember this one really clearly. Scotland. I know Scotland had a referendum about it, but we had a meeting and the conversation was, I'm pretty sure there was a referendum around local elections uh, and 16 year olds were allowed to vote at that referendum. And because of how big the turnout was with 16 year olds, I'm pretty sure in Scotland, 16 year olds are allowed to vote in local elections. You might have to fact check me on that. But I know there are lots of vote 16 various Vote 16 orgs popping up here and there. Voting at 16 is not this like horribly new foreign idea. There's a country, I'm trying to, give me a second. It's gonna come in my head, it's gonna pop in my head. I feel like it's like new, not New Zealand. You're gonna have I'm to- looking, I'm looking at the article that says the first country in the world was Austria. And then there, it's mostly been other European nations. It's been talked about in Australia. It's been talked about in Iceland. There's been like just might enough be like opposition. <laughs> I think yeah. there, it might be Argentina as well. Argentina is um, one of the ones with a 16-year-old voting age. Yeah, I think like voting, lowering the voting age is not a completely, oh my god, it's never been done before idea. And Canadians have this thing, or at least I like to think as a person who immigrated here, Canadians like being like, yes, we're the first in the world. Nobody else has ever done this. But for the first time, some other countries have beat us out on this one. I've jumped to the gun a little bit ahead of it. But it's not like we're never going to do it. I see lowering the voting age as something that is so near and close and it just needs a little bit more support. Like it just needs a little bit more support, more education, more awareness. But it's not a completely foreign idea. Yeah, I think Canada was like the fifth or sixth country to uh, legalize same-sex marriage. So we weren't first there, but we were really proud of being early on it. We could be the same here. Yeah, we could be fifth or sixth to lowering the voting age. Yeah. Speaking of Argentina and other countries that have lowered the voting age, I'm looking through the list here and it's amidst bag. You have your Scotland and Wales, but a lot of the countries on there, Brazil, Cuba, East Timor, Ecuador, like these are countries that don't tend to rank pretty highly when you look at the best governed countries in the world. Is there any actual reason to believe this really does improve outcomes. I think in in the context of Canada and Canada only, as a person growing up, I think there's been this number that kind of gets thrown around. We have more people over the age of 50 than under the age of 50. So in, in Canadian politics, people over the age of 50 have been overrepresented and young people going in are going, are going in and feel like they're the minority. And as we go, like you can look at the current political situation in BC, we have a lot of these politicians who are failing to represent the young people, the 18 to 30 year olds at all, like failing to represent what they believe in. So a lot of laws that are passing, a lot of governments that are coming through are failing to represent and protect these values that young people have right now. And if the 16, 17 year olds aren't able to vote by the time they are allowed to vote and by the time they're actually able to pass a government that represents the values of young people, there's not going to be a climate or a city or an environment for them to 
protector vote. And of course, we have lots of cl- crossover with climate activism because so many young people are heavily involved with it. And that's the the point, the thing that comes to my head when I think about quality of voting. And, and again, with quality of voting, I don't know exactly with these countries if they have a voter education. A big thing with Vote 16, again, is providing this education, regardless if you believe in lowering the voting age or not. I think everybody should have access to a fair, equal education on specifically what you're voting for. And that's not exactly provided for everybody. I remember a few years ago, there was a case in Alberta where a couple of teens challenged the voting age law under the charter because the charter grants every Canadian the right to vote. And they said, we're Canadians, we should have the right to vote. And I think they initially had some success, but they got overturned at the Court of Appeal or defeated at the Alberta Court of Appeal, who basically said they, the court or the government has some has to come up with some line on where to draw. These people are too young and clearly unable to vote. Like my 20-month-old child can't vote because she doesn't understand the idea or any of the, or doesn't even have the ability to mark a ballot privately. These can be worked around, but there has to be a line somewhere. So 18 is a reasonable enough line in the court's view that the government can deal with that. I think, again, a conversation that comes up is like marginalized people in voting. And like, I, thinking back to people getting their voting rights, it seems unimaginable that a 16 year old could create an informed decision uh, on who to vote for. Politics is super murky and there's so much, there's so much that goes into casting a ballot. It's a huge responsibility and being able to carry out your civic duty is a huge responsibility. But I, I believe a young person or a 16 year, I, I think I'm going to just clarify 16 year, 17 year old. I don't want people to think I'm talking about like an, anything younger than that. Carrying the responsibilities that a, th- a current 16, 17 year old has. I think I mentioned driving or uh, paying taxes as one, but I feel like people forget you're allowed to consent. You're allowed to consent. I know a line that some of the Scottish used with was, again, it's a little controversial one. You can sleep with the MP, but you can't vote for them. Another one is I'm pretty sure you're allowed to enlist at 17. Um, So uh, I I can actually confirm that. Yeah? Uh, Yeah, so I put in my recruiting papers to the CF when I was just a couple months shy of of my 18th birthday, and I had to get my parents' signature on that. I did not have the ability, even though by the time I was going to be sworn in, I, I would have been over 18, to unilaterally make that decision myself that parents were supportive but like there is even though you can't enlist there there is clearly a a line that is drawn there and not necessarily an unreasonable one it's not an unreasonable one at least i think for in the context of the cf there's uh i think the another line is like like you can get married with parental permission you have a lot of these things that I'll, like I, I don't think it's a completely unreasonable thing to say 18 for now, but I think if we can put in the education and, and we look at how responsible young people are, 16, 17-year-olds are right now, this point of the world, I don't think it's a wild thing to lower the voting age. Unlike from my perspective, I brought up the case just out of curiosity and the interest and relevance to this discussion, but there are a lot of adults who aren't informed and yet still vote get down the line the same way they have voted and that their parents voted for decades. And like the knowledge of the political system is not a prerequisite for voting and largely thankfully because that would be probably used to disenfranchise marginalized folks in many different ways. But I think what came up in the Scottish referendum that was most uh, relevant or pertinent for me was just this idea that like 16 and 17 year olds are going to have to deal with this decision about whether Scotland is in the UK or not longer than the 70 and 80 year olds who are voting. And just like you brought up climate change. And I think that's why we interact so many with so many youth who are super involved with climate activism. We are going to be the ones dealing with a lot of this stuff later on, especially just because the way Canada is like the, the number, I think I mentioned there are more people over the age of 50 um, than under. So just in the long term, 16 and 17 year olds are going to be so heavily affected by everything that is passing, whether it be climate change or gerrymandering or like zoning laws, like all of these things you name. It's good. It takes so much more work to get rid of something that's already in law than 
like it, it takes so much work to get rid of something like in law like end of sentence right there and looking at the scottish referendum is a great example of that what was the last referendum in bz the the proportional representation one that was a hugely important referendum that young people didn't get to vote for which is going to have a huge effect on the province for uh, a very long time even though not having not having a perfect knowledge of politics and government is not a prerequisite to vote it would be nice if it was a thing that was more accessible to more people. So 16, 17 is still high school aged for most people, like having it like added onto the BC curriculum while you're still in high school and like having that right available to you to vote while you're still in high school, while you're being given this kind of, hey, these are your options. This is what voting is and this is how it affects you. You're the different levels of government. Like having those two things at the same time, I think, in the long run would be so great. Like I think people being informed of where their vote can go and being informed of that early on in the long term, years to come is gonna have a, a better effect and better represent Canadian politics. So like we said, there there does need to be a line drawn somewhere here. And does it not make sense to just have a general age of adulthood? Like you, you can't with some exceptions who are, I'm sure loyal listeners will no doubt be happy to write in and, and clarify. You, you generally can't sign a contract if you're under 18. And th there's a lot of things like that where there's a delineation between adulthood and pre-adulthood. And does it not make And as a society, we've generally collectively decided that's going to be 18. A couple things are a year or two younger, a couple things are a year or two older. But generally, there's a a single mark that really separates the two of them. Does it not make sense to have voting in kind of that same category and not move it to a different one? I think voting at 16, 17, I think the thing is with voting, I don't think it necessarily needs to be at our universal mark of adulthood. It sounds scary, but I, I don't think we should start considering 16, 17 year old adults magically. And I don't think voting is an adult an adult right. That sounds like a very scary sentence. But 16 and 17 year olds, like what I'm, I'm trying to make clear is that although they are not adults and although they're not like, I think 16 should be like the voting kind of benchmark. 16 year olds, I think like an, an example is you can consent for healthcare. Of, of course, that's not an adult decision, but there's, I think, a kind of a, a thing with Canadian or BC medical stuff where you can make an informed decision of your healthcare if you're like aware of it. I think if you're like a 16 year old who, and I think the reason why 16 is like an age that we chose to make aware is a great age to start voting is because at that point for most people is when the context of social studies already, stuff like government starts being introduced. At, at 16, you start get, being given more adult, more mature rights at that kind of age. Although it's not an adult, like a legal benchmark, like adult age where you're considered an adult more points legally, I think it's still like an age that would be appropriate to. I I don't see every single law or like more of those kind of like, I don't see more things going down like a year or two because of the voting age going down. But I, I think it's appropriate. I grew up in Alberta where like the standard age for everything is 18. So it's always weird for me here in BC, the standard age for contracts, because I'm going to be get the guy who fact checks us in the middle of this is 19, just like the drinking age. In Alberta, I remember getting my learner's license at 14, which is definitely too early. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Way too. Or maybe I got it at 15, but you could get it at 14. You couldn't get your full license till 16. But growing up in the country, people were definitely like, I'm going to get my learner's license so I can be a full driver at 16 because that's the kind of province Alberta is. And I think it may have changed slightly since then with graduated driver licensing coming in and whatever else. But like drinking age is 18 there. I think Alberta had a, no, marriage age is federal in Canada. But in Canada, even up until 1970, the voting age was 21, which kind of just mirrored the age of conscription. And I'm just looking at various articles. It changed in 1970 yeah, to 18 and has been there ever since and various provinces changed it at different times. I can see the argument that there's different criteria. The other thing, you were mentioning the different ages of consent, like BC's model of uh, medical consent is 
really interesting because it's very variable. It's by whatever maturity of the person. And that would be really problematic to implement in voting. But based on the different treatment you're going in for, like kids as young as 12, 13 can consent to a vaccine, but like a deep surgery that involves a lot of complications might be something they can't fully consent to until older. But it's that kind of model of let's look at the problem and let's look at the individual. But I do have to wonder, so you mentioned, and I'll just put this as one of my last questions. If you mentioned the the BC Greens and the BC NDP, at least the base and the members of both those parties have supported this resolution, the NDP's in power, the Greens were in a confidence and supply agreement up until recently with them. Why hasn't BC gone ahead with this? What's the inertia that's holding this back? So the NDP has not fully supported us. It's a point of at the party convention, I'm pretty sure it passed as a motion and it stood there. I think what my guess is, it's not an official thing or anything, is um, it's, it's this fear of like slippery slope, right? You guys mentioned it, but anytime anything comes into politics, it's always, this is a slippery slope. What if we let 12-year-olds vote? What if we let 11-year-olds vote? What if, I, I think this is my least favorite thing I've heard. What if teenagers just vote for people because they're popular? What if teenagers vote for people because they get promised money? Or And, and, I w- and the entire thing I think about is adults already do that. That was literally the last election. (laughs) That was the last election. And and the example, Ontario, I I literally saw an election happen where I think it was like, is it, I I always mix them up, Doug Ford? Yeah, it's Doug Ford. I I always call him Robert. I always mix them up for some reason. He went, guys, buck a beer, vote for me. And he won. It's not exactly like this thing where we can't say every single argument that I've seen, teenagers should not vote because they are irresponsible. And this are very much arguments that apply to 18, 20 30 year olds and it's a this huge thing where it's a slippery slope and i feel like the big thing that is a hold up is people constantly bring up this argument of slippery slope whenever they see something that they're a little bit too afraid to talk about or they're unsure about which it's valid it's a completely valid argument teenagers are scary like i'm seven i'm scared of other teenagers they're like weird they're scary but they're very well educated and will stand their ground when you talk to them. I've spent the last couple like years of high school talking to fully grown people, MPs, MLAs, and it's this thing of what if this happens? What if? And we're just going to keep arguing it and spend instead of spending time passing this thing that is not this out of world concept. We're spending too much time thinking about a slippery slope. Like I do not see uh, a 12-year-old voting. <laughs> That's not exactly what Vote 16 is about. It's about giving 16 and 17-year-olds uh, a right to their future, which is very well in danger <laughs> in the context of the climate emergency that's happening. 16 and 17-year-olds are watching fully grown adults make decisions that they're not necessarily informed about. And I know other teenagers who spend so much time emailing MPs, making sure they're involved in local politics and have had a conversation and they'll get a response that's, I'll get back to you or not. And I've had people get the answer. That's interesting, but you you can't vote. So what's the point of looking at your emails? That kind of thing. I, I think that's the holdup. It's just slippery. It's the slippery slope. <laughs> and uh, just quickly adding on to that, the slippery slope argument, I think the funniest place it's gotten used, It's it's been used so much with minorities getting the right to vote. It's been used during gay marriage. We talked about Canada being like the fifth or sixth country to legalize gay marriage. I've heard so many people go, well, if gay people can get married, then, and it, it's an argument that gets used a lot when people are disenfranchised or like waiting for a right uh, of theirs to, to be given. Uh, well, before we let you go, could you uh, tell our listeners uh, where they'd go to find out more? Vote 16, it, we have a petition, Vote 16 BC. It's on the Dogwood website. You can go to dogwoodbc.ca. We're on Twitter, Vote 16 BC, and on Facebook. Sign our petition. It would be amazing if you could give us support. And it, if anything, it's important that you talk about this. Talk about it with your friend at a coffee shop and distanced with a mask or like over Zoom. Ask them what they think about young people voting because those kind of conversations are what get people thinking about 
uh, young people rights and what Canadian politics should look like. Hallelujah. Thank you for taking the time this evening and good luck with your studies. Thank you. Moving on to our second segment, Restart 2, Restart Harder. This week, BC and a couple other provinces announced their restart plans for how to get out of the current pandemic restrictions. So this was announced, I believe it was on Tuesday for BC, and essentially involves a four-step process based on three main metrics, how many case counts there are, what the hospitalizations is, and the percent of people with at least one dose of the vaccine. This compares to the, I think it was three stages of last summer's restart plan, which there was no going back from. They just reopened us a little bit more and a little bit more, and there was no like, we'll go back. And there also wasn't a clear well, criteria. That's well, the thing is, when they announced it a year, what, probably nearly a year ago now, plus or minus a couple, like a week or two, the first restart plan, I'm pretty sure they said, oh, if things get bad, we're going to change bad up and whatnot. And they really didn't for the most part. Yeah, they canceled Christmas and I guess kind of finally in what March of this year when the third wave was getting pretty bad, put in the torrent round of restrictions. But for the most part, they never really adjusted as they initially said they were going to in the uh, first restart plan. They just basically forgot about it. There were restrictions put in November, further ones as they were adjusted, and then the circuit breaker. Well, uh, but yeah. yeah forgot they, might be not... And this is something I don't think we'll ever know, but like it's not hard to... Uh, or it doesn't escape notice that the second wave really started to pick up in the middle of the uh, fall election, which I'm going to guess the the public health officer and the, the minister of health were reluctant to change track mid-election for the obvious political reasons on that. So it, it's something we'll never know, but it, it's a suspicion I've had for a while on there, and it's one that I think is plausible. So we had stages last year. We also had the phases for the school reopening, and those phases were helpfully counting the other way, I think. They were more of a DEFCON approach as opposed to the increasing steps, if I'm getting those correct. DEFCON, the lower the number, the more serious the alert stages. Okay, then we're that's the one we're on right now with the steps, and the school phases were the opposite. Well, yeah, uh, of course, with like DEFCON, you're if, as you raise the alert level, you're trying to progress and forward. Oh, it's, it's everything is confusing. Yeah, it, it depends what you consider. Measure it by seriousness or like by progression. Just they're, they're flipped in one case and not the other. So BC's current restart plan, a plan to bring us back together. It brings us towards Bonnie Henry's vision of a BC hug day, which I guess has been shot down by other members of the government but was one she admitted to having lobbied for because she misses hugging her neighbors. And maybe we can do that this summer. I think there's going to be a decent chunk of the people out there who didn't necessarily mind that it, that hugging became somewhat less socially acceptable during the uh, pandemic. It may not be uh, stoked at the prospect of a BC hug day. Indeed. She emphasized they weren't going to be mandatory hugs. They would be consent-based, of course, which is good. It would be a very weird province to live in. Let's get into the plan itself. You mentioned it, this one is based on case counts, hospitalizations, and people with at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. We are immediately in step one with stable case counts where they're actually decreasing. Well, except today was a blip, hopefully. Stable hospitalizations, at least 60% of the adult population with one dose what does that mean we can do that we couldn't do a week ago? Yeah, so for personal gatherings, you have up to 10 people outside, and indoor visitors are now allowed of up to five people or one household. Organized gatherings allow indoor seated of up to 10 and outdoor of up to 50. You can travel recreationally within your zone, but non-essential travel between zones is restricted. For sports, 
uh, low-intensity indoor fitness classes can resume, and outdoor local team of games can commence, but without spectators. Businesses can allow indoor dining of up to six people. Liquor service remains capped at 10 p.m., and the existing WorkSafe BC plans have to remain in place. And uh, finally, for offices and workspace, a gad- gradual return to the workplace and offices can start, but the existing safety plans have to stay in place. So some of this is still the same. The travel between zones is still prohibited, but the big news here is being allowed indoor visitors, something that for social visits, which hasn't been allowed since November. It's been a very lonely time since November. You could do those outdoor visits, but it was quite cold for many of them, as well as the return to indoor dining for up to six people, the like family group indoor dining, which I haven't taken up, but I know many people appreciated. Yeah, I think I've had one meal with other people indoors in the entire pandemic, and that was, what, last summer, early fall, I think? Early fall, I guess. It is, yeah. Been a long time since that. <sighs> On the other hand, like, I'm not, I get the economic case for, putting indoor dining at the front of the line on this, but just from a kind of first principles, how the virus spreads, having a bunch of people in what's typically not a huge space. I mean, restaurants aren't that big, particularly in the city, in space-limited areas. It's not a huge space, and people aren't going to be wearing masks there just because of the practical necessities of having to eat. So it's, I'm not entirely sure of the wisdom of this, but I I get the reason why they felt the need to move as quickly as they can on that. Step two is predicted to start at June 15th at the earliest. We need to see continuing declines in cases and hospitalizations and at least 65% of the adult population having received at least one dose, which I think we're getting close to already. So should be safe to reach that. We need that will allow us to have outdoor personal gatherings of up to 50 people, indoor gatherings of up to 50 people. We will have somewhere between now and then uh, a return to religious worship, but that's being consulted on still. We haven't received those. The travel restrictions within BC will be removed, so you can go around the province as you will. I think opening up BC to BC was the phrase they threw out there because we always need a couple of new catchphrases. High intensity indoor fitness classes return and you can have spectators for outdoor sports of up to 50 people. Liquor service can continue to midnight. Banquet halls will reopen and continuing kind of everything else, including the return to work. So a bit more expansion of the what you can do. Still have to wear your mask, still have to be pretty safe. Yeah, so for the first two, masks are still mandatory to indoor public spaces. But for the third stage, uh, which they expect is going to start around July 1st, masks will only be recommended. And the threshold for this is low case counts, decline in hospitalizations, and 70% of the population at the one dose of the vaccine. Uh, so yeah, for this one, which... Sorry. For this one... So return to the usual indoor and outdoor personal gatherings. You can have sleepovers. Organized gatherings can have increased capacity with a safety plan, and fairs and festivals can go ahead with a safety plan. Canada-wide recreational travels allowed. Indoor fitness classes can increase capacity, and you're allowed limited spectators for indoor sports. Uh, they're lifting the limit on number of diners in groups. Bingo halls, casinos, and nightclubs can operate with limited capacity. Although, like, there is no nightclub I could see that is going to be particularly COVID-friendly or anti-COVID-friendly, COVID-unfriendly. They're the grossest places yeah. ever. They, they were never hygienic. And finally, for office and workplace, seminars and big meetings are allowed to happen and they can operate based on a new safety plan, which reading between the lines, I guess, means a less stringent safety plan than the existing ones. Yeah, as I'm reading this, and we're going to get to Alberta in a second, this sounds like the almost return to normal state. 
like it's still highly advised you be safe, but the actual restrictions are few and far between. There's still limited capacity on some things like bingo halls, like you mentioned, nightclubs, but largely a lot of the restrictions are gone by Canada Day. Yeah, there. Yeah, it really does seem like by a uh, little over a month from now, we, we could be at the stage where things are starting to get pretty close to normal. And normal would be hopefully by September 7th with low cases and low hospitalizations and over 70% with at least one dose. Now, of course, that the, the way that's phrased does not make it particularly clear. Like, technically by this, if you go from 70% to 70.5%, you would be able to enter stage four. Which I'm guessing is not how they actually want to run it, but it's it's far from clear on that. Here they emphasize normal social contact, increased capacity on events, for example, concerts, indoor and outdoor spectators at sports, you can have more of them, continuing to operate businesses, but just even newer safety plans, and fully reopened workplaces and offices. Like This is where masks are just a personal choice, and just go about your life. And hopefully we can put the pandemic behind us in September is what they seem to be aiming for. Yeah, I, I'm going to be looking forward to not having to wear a mask everywhere. That said, I, I do hope the norm sticks around for when people are sick. would be uh, real nice to adopt what you in a lot of East Asian countries of when people have the flu or the cold and need to leave their home. They mask up and I hope that uh, sticks around here too. Indeed. I think the best way to analyze this a little more deeply is to go quickly through the other two, I think, most prominent reopening plans that were announced this week, Alberta's and Ontario's. I've copied a bunch of the details into our notes, but we can run through them quickly. Alberta's was gloriously titled Open for Summer Plan. And I think The way I'll describe it before we get into the details was the quote from Rachel Notley, which says, I have questions about how the premier decided on this pace and whether it was informed by science or simply by working backward from the first day of the Calgary stampede. I'll be wrong on that one. (laughs) Which I mean, I loved it when I heard it and then I realized BC's was largely the same in terms of being at the point where we're lifting almost all restrictions by July 1st and maybe we're in that same goal. Although I think the PNE is aiming for a smaller event this year, at least. I believe that's what they've announced. So, Alberta's phase one, effective June 1st. This will be two weeks after Albertans 12 plus. Sorry, this will be two weeks after at least 50% of Albertans 12 plus have received at least one dose and hospitalizations are below 800 and declining. So they have an exact number on hospitalizations whereas we just have low the uh, it's probably actually better to have a precise number both because it allows people to better calibrate their views on things and leaves less room for mocking about for convenience purposes i no idea what the alberta hospital capacity is so i can't really say what whether 800 is significant or not or if it's such a high if it's a high threshold or a low one but yeah i think having a solid number on there is probably better than just calling it low or medium or declining as we do the other thing i really like here is that they have a two-week gap between when the vaccine thresholds are actually hit and when the stage actually gets implemented because it does take about two weeks for the vaccines to take effect And if you have a sudden rush of people, it doesn't necessarily make sense that the next day, just because you hit that threshold, suddenly change everything around when they won't have the antibodies yet. So I had to pull it up. BC right now has 286 people in hospital. Alberta today has 538. So they have twice as many people just under in hospital, despite having fewer people in the province. But they they are at least below 800. I was worried that they were still above 800 hospitalizations, which would have been shocking. 
But yes, the setting your target for two weeks after is good. Their dose percentage is lower, but they're also including children from 12 and up. So it's not apples and oranges entirely, but they're slightly different. In terms of the specifics, Alberta has generally closed gatherings by limiting to fire code capacity. And I don't know that BC has ever formally done that, but there have been like changes through WorkSafe BC regulations that have let them have COVID occupancy amounts that I don't think are related to fire code. But for example, with stage one in Alberta, places of worship, retail can go to 15% of fire code capacity. I do believe the uh, the current restrictions on retail spaces do have a percent capacity, which is, I believe, based off the fire code. So it's just not as explicit in our ranks, but is still operative. The other restrictions in Stage 1 for Alberta are a little more severe than BC's, probably because they're still in a worse state. There's no indoor gatherings, but you can do outdoor up to 10 people. Recreational activities have to be outdoor up to 10 people. Restaurants will only be four people per table, and they have to be outside and only members of a household or two close contacts for those living alone. So you can have you can meet up with two people at a restaurant, Scott, but it would have to be outside in Alberta. There is an increase in capacity for places of worship effective tomorrow rather than june 1st trying to squeeze in one extra weekend of that yeah i don't know how much they reduced it because they never fully prohibited them in alberta like we did here they're allowing up to 15 percent of fire code capacity so not exactly or so that means it must have had a pretty low floor yeah maybe it was like five or ten people or 15 percent, something like that anyway it increases soon Stage two is targeted for mid-June. It's when it will be two weeks after 60% of Albertans 12 plus have received at least one dose and hospitalizations are below 500 and declining. So they have some work to do there. This gets us up to 20 people outdoors. And this is when this gets us up to 20 people outdoors, but they're still prohibiting indoor social gatherings from this point, really locking down the friendships in Alberta. A lot of the social a lot of the fire occupancies are up to one third. This is for indoor recreation, entertainment, other settings, as well as places of worship, retail, outdoor fixed seating, for example, grandstands, which is a very Alberta thing to need to worry about. So you can have your rodeo with a third of the people in the audience. So yeah, post-secondary is resuming in-person learning. Wedding ceremonies and funerals can allow up to 20 people each. Receptions are only permitted outdoors, but the official services can be done indoors for both of them. Restaurants can go up to six people per table, including indoors. A bunch of youth activities can start resuming, including sports with no restrictions indoors and outdoors. There's some things that don't make any sense in here. Yeah. You can't have a friend over, but you can go, like, play soccer. Yeah. Like, I I was talking earlier about the, like, does restaurants opening early make sense? That is less prone to just spread viral particles around than the very heavy breathing that comes from physical activity. At least most sports are done in large spaces with good ventilation, but yeah. The work from home order will also be lifted around this time as well. So mixed bag, real effort to get people out of their homes in this point. And finally, stage three is two weeks after 70% of Albertans 12 plus have received at least one dose, which is expected in late July or early June, as Rachel Notley says, in time for the stampede. This one's pretty simple. All restrictions are lifted. That's not complicated at all. It's quite something. Like... BC is doing that, but there's still a lot of like new safety plans and some specific capacity restrictions that will still be in place for the yeah, summer. Yeah, like, I feel like our stage three, or was it step three, I think, on this, it at least allows us to not just throw caution to the wind right away and still gives us a little bit of flexibility to fiddle with things if need be. But then again, our premier is not facing something like a third of his caucus threatening to revolt if he doesn't unlock everything right away. True. 
which is quite the fun that they're having over there. Let's go to Ontario, where they also have a three-step process. Similarly to the first two provinces, it's based on vaccination dosages. But as far as I can tell, it's officially only based on vaccination rates. I think they did have some clarification after it was released that, oh yeah, if cases are increasing, we'll probably factor that in as well. But when it was initially announced, the three-step roadmap to safely reopen the province, step one was at 60% vaccinated, step two was at 70% with one dose and 20% with two doses, and step three was 70 to 80 with one dose and 25% with two doses. Just nice and clean vaccinations only. If between just going with pure vaccines doses or pure case counts, probably the vaccine one actually makes a little more sense. Because it's the thing that's ultimately going to decide whether or not it's going to be a success in stamping out COVID in Canada. Honestly, I'd almost go the other way. I'd go with hospitalizations as a nice clear indicator. Because if the vaccines are, if people are getting the vaccines, the cases and hospitalizations will fall. Well, that's the thing. Is they're a presumably hospitalizations are a leading indicator, though. It just makes yeah. it hard to use that as your input variable if you're two to three weeks lagging from any changes you make. There's not a lot of, there's the economic and the social challenges caused by it, but to having the lockdown go a little bit longer doesn't necessarily cause the harm that opening things up too fast can do. Yeah, although at least in this case, just because we have the vaccines, it's fundamentally quite different than what the last round of openings up were and i'm feeling a lot better about the whole thing and uh, a little less worried about pushing things too fast if we're uh hitting the vaccine targets that are listed here like i the one dose on the mrna vaccines it's what like 80 percent effective and the second dose just brings you up to what the 95 90 to 95 percent range most people with one dose are going to be in a pretty good position, especially considering back before we knew how good these vaccines were, I think the threshold that Health Canada and the FDA and all were looking at with for whether or not a vaccine was good enough to administer was something like 50%. So we have some really good vaccines here, and it's just makes things a whole lot uh, easier and a lot less stressful when you know that even with the one dose, you're pretty good position, even if you should still follow the rules. Well, let's the burn way. through the steps of the Ontario opening plan. Step one, at 60% with one dose. This is an initial focus on resuming outdoor activities with small crowds where the risk of transmission is lower and limited retail with restrictions. Oh, There'll right, be yeah, outdoor. Ontario had a bunch of limits on retail and a lot of stores got just closed down altogether. Whereas that here we limited capacities, but we didn't really close our stores the way Ontario did. Yeah, I think it was last year stores voluntarily closed. But after that, we've never had a formal everyone needs to shut everything down. We did, though, decide in this last round to force stores to close or force businesses to close where outbreaks were occurred, which seems like it was quite helpful, even if you're chasing where the virus was. It at least creates a pretty strong incentive on workplaces to not let outbreaks happen. Ontario will also allow outdoor gatherings of up to 10 people, outdoor dining with four people per table, and non-essential retail at 15% capacity in step one. Step two at 70% with one dose, 20% with two doses, is a further expansion of outdoor activities with limited indoor services for small number of people with face coverings worn, uh, outdoor gatherings up to 25, outdoor sports leagues, overnight camps, etc. with face coverings worn, indoor religious services, rites or weddings and funerals at 15% capacity. So where we're heading towards right now. And finally, uh, step three is 70 to 80% of adults with one dose and 25 with two. Expand access to indoor settings with restrictions including where large numbers where there are large numbers of people where face coverings can't always be worn and that includes things like indoor sports recreational fitness indoor dining museums art galleries libraries and a bunch of other 
such venues with capacity limits. So Ontario didn't give us the here are the dates we expect this to happen, which I think is a quite reasonable thing to do, even though theirs is probably the most predictable, given it's largely based on doses. I get not giving dates, but it also, I think, for BC and Alberta, gives people hope and a thing to focus on. If you can just make it to June 15th, and then you can do this, and then you can make it to July 1st, and you can basically party. Yeah, Canada's going to be fun. Everyone's just going to be super nervous. Yeah, probably. But although I'm still going to be pretty careful and everything, but uh, this past Monday, it was two weeks since my first dose. I I can feel my stress level drop a lot just having crossed that threshold. I'm still waiting. Mine is is scheduled for Sunday. Dose one, I guess. uh, Glad that's coming up soon. But yeah, no, it feels a lot better to be on the other side and uh, be great when everybody at least has one dose. The end is hopefully in sight. Yeah, that's probably the most hopeful I felt in a long time. Moving on to quick takes, let's touch on the big story in the news right now here in BC. The arrests are happening at the blockades at the Ferry Creek logging operations as RCMP are starting to enforce the injunctions that the logging company Teal Jones won in court. Tons of different stories out there, lots of different things you can read. Yeah. I think we briefly mentioned when the injunctions were granted, probably, what, two weeks ago now? Like we talked about it last week. Not surprising that I think things have gotten to the point of arrest. The The protesters seem pretty intent on trying to stop this thing, and I'm not surprised to see that an injunction hasn't deterred them by itself. Yeah, it's quite a emotional situation, right? Because... BC's old growth forests are such a, I don't know, sacred resource. I wouldn't usually use that word, but it's such a like pinnacle thing, an iconic thing you think of with BC, and they're such a finite resource, and they're shrinking. And the question is on the BC government whether they're doing enough to protect them. The other side of this story, of course, being what we've talked about previously with the local First Nations, particularly the Pachidat, whose hereditary and elected councils have both come out strongly in support of their own sovereignty to make these decisions about the logging on their territories. Nevertheless, there are Indigenous people among the protesters, and so like the Wet'suwet'en protests of early last year, it's getting characterized as land defenders versus the government trying to exploit divisions to do resource extraction. But I think it's it wasn't clear-cut in Wet'suwet'en, and I think it's less clear-cut here, if anything. Maybe not the best turn of phrase to apply to the situation. Hey. Yeah, but it's, it really does seem to be the case where the, I think, typical narrative you, you often hear when it comes to resource development of the the local indigenous peoples versus the companies that are engaged in the resource development stuff just doesn't really apply here because the local band is very much a, a active partner in this and wants to see this go forward and i don't know it feels just a little unfortunate or, or questionable to see people who were six, maybe not six months ago, year and a half ago when the wet sweating issues were at the forefront, try to claim the mantle of the land defender upholders of the indigenous sovereignty, try and also claim that here or, or go against that in this case. And like, I think it's an entirely legitimate point for the environmentalists to look at the everything and decide, okay, the environment has to take priority here. When we're looking at everything else, ultimately, sovereignty doesn't matter if the planet's uninhabitable. This is our priority. But if they're going to take that position, I, they should at least own that in, in all the cases and not try and, I think, glom on to other issues to try and bolster that when it's convenient and then not do that or or push back against that when things go the other way. 
Yeah, I think you can respect indigenous sovereignty disagreeing with the decisions of certain bands. That's I respect that the US is a sovereign nation while disagreeing with many of its domestic and foreign policies. Very simple. The key, I think, is when the protesters are making specific demands, when they make those demands of the BC government, they're asking the BC government to ignore its obligations that it's committed to under UNDRIP and other protocols and asking it to overrule the local nation. Now, it doesn't look as great if the protesters are protesting an Indigenous nation's government, but that's where the power should be in the situation. It, there's more to it. It's far more nuanced than this. I think a really great piece that I want to dig more into when I have a bit more time I just saw is this interview with Gary Merkel in the Narwhal that I'll link to in the show notes. This is uh, Merkel is one of the panel members of BC's Old Growth Forest Review, who's been somewhat frustrated that the province hasn't enacted all of its recommendations as the NDP has promised as quickly as they promised. Merkel is also Merkel is also an indigenous person. He's a member of the Talton Nation, so he's got quite a few interesting perspectives on how to reconcile and navigate these dilemmas and these challenges. So interesting read. But the other thing that came up from this story this last couple days was the tree heard round the Twitter sphere. Did you see this uh, picture before the like stories about it came out? Yeah, I, I spent too much time on Twitter and definitely saw the picture floating around and getting retweeted and whatnot. Yeah, so it's if you haven't seen it, it's a picture of a cut down tree that's like larger than a lane on the highway being driven not, down the road. It's not larger than Lele. They don't have the oversized load markers out, and it looks like about the width of the truck deck. So, yeah, I call it eight feet in diameter, probably. All right, fair enough. I didn't have it open when I was it's big. describing it. It is a large tree. It's one of the largest trees like, people yeah. would generally see driving you, you down the road. You don't really see logging trucks with, you know, pie, with you know a bundle of trunks on them that are stacked... I'm trying to remember how a logging truck looks now. It's been a while since I've been out around that area. Couple trees side by side, several high. Now that this is just one truck occupying the space that is normally a half dozen or so or more. And so the immediate question that people started speculating on it was: This a tree cut down in Ferry Creek, and is this a proof that the BCNDP has failed to protect our old growth forests because this is clearly an old tree. And it turns out the answer uh, is no. The Glacier Media put out the story of where this tree came from, and it's actually a quite... It was actually cut down probably between March and mid-August of last year in 2020 and had just been sitting for a while, and hence why it doesn't actually look freshly cut. It actually looks somewhat weathered at the end. It was cut down just before new rules brought in by the province protect exceptionally large trees throughout the province. This is 1,500 specific trees. And so if you had cut this down this week, you could be facing a fine of up to $100,000. So it was cut down, and that is sad because it is a exceptionally large tree. But it has been protected, or it's brethren are now protected by the Special Tree Protection Regulation, which of course many point out doesn't protect the old but not special trees that are out there. From wood fiber to internet fiber optic cables, the CRTC is scrapping plans to mandate lower wholesale internet rates. So this was the decision announced today, rolling back a previous decision from 2016 that required the main telecom companies uh, to provide cheaper wholesale prices to the smaller operations that don't uh, kind of own the major infrastructure pieces. So this would be your like, catch savvies and, and similar sorts of ISP. This is being roundly panned by anyone who's not working for Bell, Rogers, or TELUS. It sounds bad. 
Yeah, the, the Twitter reaction I saw today was not uh, great. That's for sure. Tech Savvy's already announced, I saw just now, that they will not be participating in the ni- next round of wireless auctions because they just can't afford to go up against unrestricted giants. And so competition is uh, a myth in this country. It's at least a significant problem when it comes to things like ISPs that are very much a, a natural monopoly just because of the very intensive uh, infrastructure and capital costs associated with it. I, If you're to ask Bell, or at least read what uh, Bell told the CBC here, it, they were being mandated to sell below uh, cost and, and would have been losing money on it, which I don't know. Given where internet prices are in Canada, I find pretty skeptical, but like on the off chance that is true, it is something that should be seriously considered. Like you don't want a situation where you remove any incentive to invest in the next round of infrastructure upgrades because it's a, a money loser, but probably not what's actually the case here. Like I'm just going through Michael Geist's timeline and people like that who are just really trying to find what does this mean and being pretty pessimistic about the long-term outlook, especially in light of Bill C-10, which I don't think we've really touched on this podcast, but lots of others have talked. Yeah, that's worth diving into for sure at some point. But like C-10 gives a lot more power to the CRTC to look at the internet and if this is the kind of decisions the CRTC are making, do we trust them with making more decisions that affect more of our content, including this podcast, potentially? Yeah, Re- regulatory chapters are always a challenge when it, and, and a problem when it comes to any sort of government regulation. It's an ever-present problem, and it, it wouldn't... I don't know enough about the inner workings of the CRTC to say whether there are not or how much it's the case here, but like it would not be entirely a surprise. But just on the general like telecoms issues, because it is so hard to have competition, particularly in a country like Canada, that it's not like one of those tiny, densely populated European countries where it's fairly cheap to service a whole lot of customers in a pretty small area. It's generally the case where you're not going to have a competitive kind of market that really drives competition the way that you ideally want. And maybe there should be a crown corporation that does that owns, you know, both the backbone infrastructure or a set of backbone infrastructure and does frontline service as well, both to inject some competition into it and to, I think, give the uh, government a little more direct ability to provide the rural broadband services that they've been talking about for what feels like decades, but it's probably not quite that long. Scott, you're speaking my language. I just moved out here to Coquitlam, and I had to cancel my TELUS fiber connection because they don't offer internet service here. My options were Shaw or a smaller competitor who buys their internet through Shaw. So. I had really the one choice of who connects my house to the internet, which Coquitlam's not the rural beast. It's not rural even. Like It's still a fairly dense part of Metro Vancouver. There are towers in Coquitlam, not small ones either. Like maybe if I was in Coquitlam Center rather than in the burb outside of it, but Yeah, like the SkyTrain goes to Coquitlam. Yeah, I can walk to the SkyTrain, and I can only have one choice on internet. Everyone should have more choice and cheaper internet, and I don't see anything promising here. And we'll see if the government is able to do anything. Successive governments have continually failed on this question, to different extents. But let's look at the next big plan for Canada, because if we can't do reasonable internet, maybe we can land something on the moon. Canada wants to put a robot on the moon, and we're looking for companies to do it for us because it's Canada and we got to do it via P3, of course. Yeah, so this was announced by uh, Minister 
Francois-Philippe Champagne, the yesterday that Canada wants to land a rover on the moon, an, an unmanned robotic vehicle. This is supposed to be done in partnership with NASA, which doesn't exactly say what that entails, but I guess it means we're going to be using one of their rockets for the actual delivery portion of the project. Canada notably having zero rockets and zero launch pads so far. I think there are weird uh, talks about doing one. Doesn't CSA have a, a launch, a not very co- regularly used launch pad somewhere? If not, we should build a launch pad. And maybe rocket capacity. I was going to say, if we're going to be spending a bunch of money on superclusters and the hot new industrial policy that seems to be in vogue right now, can we at least get a rocket company out of the deal? I had to look up the Wikipedia. We had launched some in the 60s and... Like uh, Churchill, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, we launched the Alouette 1 in September 62. That made us the third country in the world to put an artificial satellite into space. We did a couple others in... But more recently... Anyway, you're looking at, I'll just say that space is going to be, I think, an increasingly important realm, both economically and militarily. And having more internal Canadian capacity on that front is probably a good idea. It's the natural downside to this, or at least the thing that makes one a little skeptical, is this will probably be... <sighs> Or there's a good chance that this will end up as one of these overpriced contracts that Bardier or Irving ends up winning and eh, may or may not go as well as it could. But if they can avoid that particular pitfall, there's there's some promise there. So yeah, Churchill is where we launched some rockets. That's the military base in Manitoba. It's Spaceport Canada, but it's out of commission. In 2011, they announced that they are researching locations in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, or potentially relaunching the Churchill rocket research range why Cape for microsatellite. Like, why not use the southern tip of Nova Scotia rather than the northern tip? I don't know. Probably just you still need to get things to it. But like, why not the Yarmouth launch site? Research for a future episode when those open in, I think they're predicted 2024 or later. I think we actually had a quick take like three, two, three years ago about a... Uh, it, some entrepreneur that wanted to create a spaceport in Nova Scotia. I have to look that up when we're done. Anyway, we're going to put something on the moon. One of our astronauts is shortlisted for being on the next manned mission to go around the moon, which is cool. Reliving the space race. And maybe it's all in competition with China. It's Cold War all over again. Hey, if we can get a, a moon base out of the deal, may not be the worst thing. Although China just successfully landed a rover on Mars, so I think they're doing better than Canada. Well, it's time to step up our game and uh, start plans for the Canadian lunar colony. It is the Red Planet. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Politoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.